Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you are with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a great weekend. Jim, uh, first of all, thanks to you and to uh, Chad for filling in for me on Friday. Uh, More on that odyssey probably at some other time. But uh, we have a little bit of NFL news to cover. And that is that both of our teams were in action yesterday. Uh, My condolences to the Jets. The home opener. Were they in action, Greg? (laughs) Were they? Or were they just kind of standing there on the field as the offense ran past them over and over again? Uh, Zach Wilson has just thrown another interception. I know the game has been over for many, many hours, but somehow he found them, the team bus and he threw more balls at the, at the, uh, at the Patriots. <laughs> the Jets were like Barack Obama's state Senate voting record. They were present, but that's, that's about it. The Bears did get a win 20 to 17. It was 20 to three with about five minutes left in the game. So it got a lot more interesting than it should have. Uh, I got to say it wasn't the Bears fan's greatest hour on Twitter when Andy Dalton got hurt. Uh, I know we've been excited to see what Justin Fields can do, uh, but could you at least not be in uh, unrestrained glee? Um, <laughs> Restrained glee is all you want. <laughs> yes, you know, the, oh, that's terrible. Oh, feel better, Andy. Right. Try to hide it. We're not saying you have to successfully hide it. Just make the effort to hide it. Look, we want to get to Justin Fields. We're going to get to Justin Fields, but could you at least, you know, you have some dignity as we go through this process. But anyway, grateful for the win. And, and so we'll see where the season goes from here. I don't have hugely high expectations, but let's get into our martinis today. We got two good ones and one absolutely crazy one. And Jim, this first one we actually discussed way back in late November when this actually happened. But we've got some more details now. And as longtime listeners to the Three Martini Lunch know, there are a few things we enjoy talking more about than cool ways that Israel kills Iranian nuclear scientists or just Iranian uh, political figures uh, whenever they have the opportunity. And so hats off to the Hill where I read this, but they got it from the New York Times. So it says, Israeli agents killed Iran's top nuclear scientist late last year using a remote-controlled machine gun and... Artificial intelligence, according to a report from the New York Times. Iranian intelligence knew an attack was likely against Mohsen Fakhrizada, but major breaches of security protocols enabled the assassination. On the day of the killing, November 27th, Fakhrizada insisted he drive his wife from their vacation home near the Caspian Sea to a country home in Absard. This guy's got a lot of vacation homes. Uh, Though security measures were in place to protect Fakhrizada along the way, An Israeli assassin was able to identify and assassinate him from a thousand miles away using a satellite-controlled machine gun capable of shooting up to 600 rounds per minute. Fakhrizad had been a top target of Israel for more than a decade as the country viewed him as the leader of Iran's clandestine efforts to build a nuclear bomb. So, Jim, I mean, this is straight out of... James Bond, perhaps uh, even beyond anything that Q could have devised here. Uh, AI-enabled machine guns. I mean, this is essentially droning with machine guns <laughs> a thousand miles away, and uh, it keeps working. So, good. Greg, the first thing that jumped out at me is the headline over at the New York Times. Quote, the scientist and the AI-assisted remote control killing machine. It sounds like a children's bedtime story brought to you by James Cameron. Um, the, so the, the other observation about that, first of all, like it really is fascinating and it really is kind of this, you can suddenly have this recognition 
that yes, you would still that, that this is the sort of thing that could change um, the the use of deadly force in foreign policy and assassinations uh, quite a bit. They are both for good and for ill. Uh, that you no longer would you yes, you would need to you know to get your equipment uh, into the country, but once you had done that, you would not need to risk a team or a sniper or a particular staffer. You could, and it sounds like that truck can drive, you know, all around and uh, be a you know really long distance from the target. And, you know, you could either do a very fine, you know, precise sniper shot, or you could unload those 600 rounds per minute and do an enormous amount of damage. So um, this, I, I really want to salute, I think it was a Cyberdyne Technologies out in California that had developed this. And there's, there's absolutely no way that I, artificial intelligence assisting uh, military applications. There's no way this could go wrong. Um, but nonetheless, like it does feel like a, uh, I'm glad that the Israelis discovered this a lot before the Iranians did or any other hostile uh, uh, government did. And, you know, it, it is probably going to make it easier to justify the risks of attempting to take what they used to euphemistically called direct action uh, to eliminate someone who is of great importance to uh, an opposing regime. Um, it's, you know, we may look back on this as a, uh, so yeah, we, we've seen drone strikes and what makes it different is that, you know, drone strikes are up in the air. You can try to make them stealthy, but they show up on radar. Uh, this can look like an ordinary truck driving around and, and really not arouse too much suspicion, which is probably going to make it much more, um, useful as a tool of, uh, uh, you know, counterterrorism and, uh, national security, statecraft, and things like that. So fascinating stuff, and uh, you know, a fairly even-handed story in the New York Times, as far as that goes. Well, the other thing I was thinking about is, how do you like to be like a top-of-the-line sniper and look at that and say, "God, I'm getting obsolete." Definitely. Automation is coming for every American job, including apparently our top-of-the-line sni- foreign uh, snipers. That's that's really depressing. You know, you got <laughs> to right. retool your skills. I used to be the sniper. Now I have to fix the sniper machine. Yeah. Didn't even think about that aspect of it. But as we'll learn later in this edition of the Three Martini Lunch, this is only cool if you actually hit the right target. So uh, we will... That's uh, a good point, yes. We will be digging into that uh, in, in, our, in our last martini, our crazy martini. In the meantime, uh, the economy is still shaky right now. Inflation's on the rise. So figuring out the best ways to invest uh, is always a, a challenge. But if you know anything about investing, you know that the traditional portfolio is pretty much dead. No longer are we in the days of your grandpa's 60-40 stock bond allocation. Now you need to be balancing real estate, crypto, options, and plenty of other things. But there's one asset class that has stood the test of time for centuries, one that billionaires spend more money on than anything else. Over two-thirds of all billionaire collectors allocate 10 to 30% of their personal fortunes into it. What is it? It's blue chip art. Greg, it's always been out of reach for everyday investors, but that's all changed thanks to a recently enacted law. Now you can get portfolio exposure to multi-million dollar paintings by artists like Basquiat and Picasso and Banksy without shelling out $20 million to buy the painting outright. Thanks to Masterworks, this $6 trillion opportunity is wide open to all Americans. They've got more than 200,000 members, and they've been featured in spots like the Wall Street Journal and Fox Business. Demand is exploding, and their wait list is crazy long. But lucky for you, Masterworks has given us 40 passes to skip it. If you want to secure your spot, go to masterworks.io slash martini. That's masterworks.io slash martini. We'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. 
All right, Jim, we promised two good martinis today, and we shall deliver. This news came yesterday, courtesy of the Associated Press, but it really comes courtesy of the Senate Parliamentarian. AP reports Democrats cannot, cannot use their $3.5 trillion package bolstering social and climate programs for their plan to give millions of immigrants a chance to become citizens, a crushing blow to what was the party's clearest pathway in years to attaining that long-sought goal. The decision by Elizabeth McDonough, the Senate's nonpartisan interpreter of its often enigmatic rules, is a damaging and disheartening setback for President Joe Biden, congressional Democrats, and their allies in the pro-immigration and progressive communities. Though they said they'd offer her fresh alternatives, McDonough's stance badly wounds their hopes of unilaterally enacting over-Republican opposition, changes letting several categories of immigrants gain permanent residence and possibly citizenship. Gosh, AP, I'll get you a box of Kleenexes. I'm sorry this didn't stay in the bill. My goodness, you could have uh, put this a little, little more objectively. But uh, we're already, uh, like the article says there, seeing Democrats scrambling to find some alternative that'll work. But unless it involves you know, fiscal policy, I'm not sure how that's going to. Uh, you also have uh, people like Ilhan Omar saying, it's just a recommendation. Just just ignore it. Just do it anyway. You don't have to, have to follow that. But uh Jim, this is uh, at least the second time the Senate parliamentarian has uh, breathed at least a whiff of sanity into the proceedings up there. Once was uh, knocking the $15 minimum wage out of the COVID relief bill. And now it's pointing out that, hey, if you want to do amnesty, you got to do that the normal way. It's not part of budget reconciliation. You know, my understanding, Greg, is progressives are so upset about the parliamentarian's ruling that a significant percentage of them have already said, hey, wait, go back to before earlier and tell me more about that robot killing machine. <laughs> so here's the thing. There's nothing stopping House Democrats from introducing legislation that would effectively declare, we declare an amnesty for everyone who's entered the country illegally over the past 10 years, 20 years, whatever month of time. And they could, they could pass it probably. You know, it would probably end up with a whole bunch of them losing their seats in uh, 2022. They could do that and they could try to get it through the Senate. There would be a fill that would, you know, be filibuster faster than you could say fast and furious as an Eric Holder. Um, and they would end up uh, having a very difficult time. It would not get through. Um, but, you know, and, and President Biden already floundering with his approval rating, you know, now now it's kind of lower end of the 40s, not just the mid 40s. Um, that would, you know, like they could do it. It just isn't, wouldn't be very popular. There'd be, you know, um, the, the reaction of the Republican, uh, grassroots would be just off the charts, white hot rage, you know, like, so here's like, why are they trying to slip this into a massive spending bill? Because they don't want it to get noticed because they know it probably wouldn't have the votes if you did it all by itself, all by itself. That's one of the many, many reasons we hate these giant massive spending bills because, they're basically Trojan horses. They're basically the sort of thing, look, how much stuff can we, can we slide in here that aren't going to get a heck of a lot of attention, that aren't going to get a heck of a lot of scrutiny, and that everybody in our party feels like we have to do this. Otherwise, the president's agenda is going to get tanked. And oh, by the way, we should point out if there's a bit of a silver lining to this, it's that let's say in the last 24 to 48 hours, the scenario in which they don't get the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed and they don't get this massive, you know, multi-trillion dollar spending bill passed as well seems a little bit better, but I don't want to count any chickens before they hatch. Um, I mean, this is, you know, this is one of those things where a fundamental problem of our governance, and I think the founders kind of invaded this, like when people had an idea, they would turn it into legislation and then people would debate the merits of that legislation. They really didn't think that basically legislators would have this whole idea, a whole agenda they wanted to enact without actually holding it to public scrutiny. 
and that they basically want to slip it in under the radar under some other more positive and, and popular legislation. And basically, uh, uh, you know, kind of you know, stealth legislation, basically. Um, and that's how pork is proliferated. And that's a whole bunch of stuff. And once the government does tons and tons of stuff, it requires uh, more bandwidth than the public mind has to scrutinize this legislation. And it's been this way for decades, but it got really, really worse in the last couple of decades. So um, it's good that the parliamentarian has struck this down. It does kind of, you know, we're left with the still basic problem, which is that Democrats want to enact an amnesty, want to enact a path to citizenship for people who came here illegally, and they know it's not popular and they want to figure out some way to make it happen. Um, and, you know, it, conceivably, could you have done a path to not citizenship, but a, laugh, a path to legal permanent resident status in exchange for, say, you know, completing the border wall or border fencing or something like that? Yeah, that, you know, people have been saying that kind of offer on, could have been, you know, worked out at any point over the last five years. It could still be worked out at some point. But for obvious reasons. Republicans are wary about making millions of people who came here illegally and saying, poof, presto changeo, you're a citizen. And for obvious reasons, Democrats are, have no interest in, uh, in doing any border fencing because otherwise, Greg, you wouldn't have great scenes like the ones in Del Rio. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's uh, that's a bad but crazy martini in, in more detail for another day. But uh, I, I assume if you well, you maybe I don't assume because hardly anybody's covering it in the mainstream media. You got over ten thousand uh, immigrants, a lot of them Haitians. Not exactly sure how they got to Latin America to make the trip north anyway, but uh, they're all stuck under a bridge in uh, Del Rio, Texas, which is turning into a humanitarian crisis. Uh, some reports say we're going to fly them back to Haiti. Other reports say a lot of them, if they've got family members, are going to get to stay. But it's uh, it's another major black eye that the media is. Uh, conveniently ignoring for the sake of the Biden administration <laughs> to the point where uh, they've banned drones flying over for a time. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a total mess. And Jim, uh, two other things quickly on the uh, on the ridiculous three and a half trillion dollar bill here. Cinema says she won't consider the three and a half trillion until the House passes the infrastructure bill. Of course, the House is saying they're not going to pass the infrastructure bill. Uh, until the $3.5 trillion uh, package is passed. And Manchin is now saying he doesn't want to touch the $3.5 trillion bill till 2022, which who knows if he's going to stick to that. But as long as Manchin and Cinema are stringing this out, I think what Republicans ought to be doing is day after day after day, rolling out exactly what you talked about, all these things that are hidden in this massive bill. You've got time to pour through this, look at these horrible ideas, Pour some sunshine on them and show the American people this isn't just pre-K and community college and child care. That's a lot of really horrible things that are going to be really expensive. That's going to drive this nation further into debt and erode freedom massively. Yeah, we, we've seen this not succeed in the past. If you have stuff in your bill that is relatively bipartisan, relatively popular, not going to be, you know, get that passed by itself. I mean, you have no idea how, by the way, like this is a crazy idea, but if you actually went and did that, people might think better of Congress. They might actually trust Congress more. You might actually build momentum for the other stuff you want to do if you do if you pick the low-hanging fruit. But no, no, no. we got to do everything in one giant, massive, multi-trillion dollar bill. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Hmm. Well, you know, it's the low-hanging fruit in the online world? Your privacy, your information. Because if you're not protecting it, it means it's out there for your internet service provider, for hackers, for a lot of different people who don't mean you well. Uh, and going online without ExpressVPN is uh, just pretty much leaving yourself vulnerable out there. You might not feel like you have anything to hide, but why give all these different entities the right to just sift through everything you're doing? Look, everyone needs 
a VPN because when you go online without one, internet service providers can see every single website you visit and then they sell all this information based on where you go without you knowing about it to ad companies and tech giants and then you become the product. They target you with all their uh, different offers and perhaps sell your information to other people as well. So why use ExpressVPN? Well, you can browse more anonymously. When you use ExpressVPN, ISPs cannot see your online activity. Your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server, and your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. It's easy to use. You just fire up the app and click one button. And it works on all your devices, whether it's phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can also be protected. Look, you need protection online. It's just that simple. Uh, Even if everything you're doing, which I assume it is, is on the up and up. It's just that the internet service provider, potential hackers, uh, fishers, all these other people, they don't need to see it. You need to have your data protected. just makes sense. So secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash martini today. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash martini. And you can get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our crazy martini now, which is also very, very bad. And we knew this was coming. We had uh, talked about this New York Times report and kudos uh, to the Times, uh, they're apparently the place to go when it comes to uh, uh, high-tech uh, uh, strikes. But we found out that uh, this ISIS-K strike that we uh, supposedly launched a couple days after the uh, terrorist attack on American forces and many others at the Kabul airport, uh, we, were, we were told it was a great success. They wouldn't give us any names of anybody killed, but uh, they told us it was a great success. Well, the Times started digging into it, and they found out that who we really killed was a U.S. ally, an aid worker. And who also we likely killed were a bunch of children who ran out to greet him right when the uh, when the strike happened. And so on Friday, the Pentagon actually admitted this, which I got to give him a molecule of credit for. I just thought they would try to bury it, although they did it on a late Friday afternoon. But they announced it through Central Command. General McKenzie, who you might remember announcing the official withdrawal from Afghanistan, announced that no ISIS-K fighters were killed in the U.S. drone strike in Kabul on August 29th. And then Lucas Tomlinson over at Fox News points out that 10 civilians were killed, including seven children in a Toyota. No disciplinary action is expected, officials say. And now the insane part, U.S. military stands by the intel leading to the strike. Jim, it's been confirmed that we targeted and killed the wrong people. Unless we didn't hit what we were aiming at, the intel sucked. So how can we possibly stand by it? (laughs) You know, perhaps the oldest and most frustrating joke that is associated with the U.S. military going back decades and decades is the term military intelligence. That's a contradiction in terms. Um, But this is the sort of anecdote that really makes people... Um, not just doubt that, but it, it makes it very difficult to have the trust in the military that we we really need to have, and not never mind would want to have. I had a conversation with uh, uh, the musician John Andrasik earlier today, um, who's going out on tour. He's got a song about Afghanistan, and we were talking about this. We we're talking about how um, we're used to politicians not being honest. We're, we're we've kind of gotten used to that. We've had some humdingers in the last couple of. Uh, years and decades. And so we're, we're you know, but we thought better of our military. We thought better of the people who'd be wear the country's uniform um, and, and that they would tell it to us straight or straight enough that they would, that they stood for certain values 
And I could say, again, give them a molecule of credit for acknowledging the mistake. I hope and assume the U.S. will be making some sort of reparations to those families. It's not going to bring back their loved ones, but it is going to demonstrate our contrition and our regret and our recognition that we fouled up on this one. This was not somebody else's fault. They were, you know, this was a aid worker just trying to transport water, just going about their day. Still have this nagging question of, we talked about the information sharing relationship we had with the Taliban. And you cannot help but wonder, was some, you know, was at some point were we taking intelligence from the Taliban? Was this some sort of disinformation operation or something like that where somebody wanted to uh, take out this guy and shared along information that was designed to make him look like a terrorist or something like that? But this initial statement of we stand by our intelligence, like that's, that's just appalling. And it just is a, it, it plays down to every stereotype of an unthinking war machine that does not care about the consequences of its actions. I, it, it hurts me to say that because um, I have military folks in my family. I think the world of them, but their leadership is just not exhibiting the values that the, we have always associated with the U.S. military. So uh, it's just mind boggling. It's bewildering. It's enraging. And I, I was thinking the other day, Greg, could you imagine, like, you know, imagine any other chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who are generally not terribly controversial figures or, or well-known figures? Colin Powell stands one. Millie has had his efforts to root out uh, people people perceive as making the ranks woke, uh, celebrating diversity, identifying white male rage, all kinds of stuff that people thought, saw as kind of attempts to social engineer in the military. Um, He's got Afghanistan. He's got the phone call to the Chinese saying, oh, don't worry if I uh, if, if we're going to if we're going to have a surprise attack, don't worry, I'll call you ahead of time and tell you. And then finally, this one, the final shot that we uh, fired in Afghanistan killed innocent people, including children like any one of those would be an egregious career ender of a scandal. And somehow, Greg Milley has managed to get by with four of them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Two closing thoughts here, uh, Jim. First of all, just reading on Yahoo that the Dutch foreign minister uh, resigned on Thursday after Parliament formally condemned her handling of the Afghanistan evacuation. And that came a day after the British foreign secretary uh, was demoted for the way that he dealt with the situation. I'm pretty sure the Dutch and even the British weren't lead on this policy, Jim, and yet all the people that could not have bungled this worse, although maybe it's possible they could have bungled it worse, but they certainly bungled it horribly in just about every conceivable way. Nobody, nobody is paying a price for this. Well, I'm glad the Dutch, hey, yeah, it's all your fault, Dutch. <laughs> all 12 of your guys, I, I don't mean to, to, you know, to, to poo-poo the contributions of our allies, but let's face you know, it, this was not a Dutch operation. This was a, you know, this was, this was a coalition heavily led and shaped by the United States of America. And we're the ones who made all the decisions. And apparently, if you talk to our allies, including the British, we barely talked to them uh, before announcing the pullout and, and certainly did not consult with them and certainly did not give them any opportunities to weigh in here. So I don't know about you, Greg, I am just sick and tired of this insufferable and self-destructive cowboy unilateralism coming from this administration. <laughs> if only we had somebody who was multilateralist and who worked well with others and cared about 
world opinion like, you know, Donald Trump or George W. Bush. As you know, Jim, I interview veterans and sometimes authors about veterans. And uh, the, one of the books I'm reading right now is uh, about the U.S. Marine Raiders in the Pacific in the early days of World War II. And they were screening people to be in the service. When I think about Millie screening people for their politics and uh, potentially uh, dealing with white rage, the way they screened uh, guys for this Marine Raider unit was they'd sit them down. How's your marksmanship? Good. Okay. How's your fitness? Good. Okay. Uh, do you have any problem walking up behind the enemy and slitting his throat without thinking? Uh, no, I'm good with that. Okay. You're in. That's how we used to screen for personnel in the military right there. Sounds like good qualities to me. I'd like to have that, you know, not the, okay, but in the capital gains tax rate, how much would you raise it? <laughs> oh man. Amazing. A lot has changed in not that long. But uh, Jim, in any event, uh, good to be back with you today um, and uh, hope for even more good martinis tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast and uh, tell your friends about us as well. Um, we always are very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday. And please join us on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. There's so much going on in the news, but don't worry because we're here to talk about all the things. Arguments over vaccine mandates carry on as the government continues to infringe on our constitutional rights. People are going crazy for the official start of the NFL season, and everyone's attention has shifted to the elitist Met Gala's outfits as AOC outfits reading Tax the Rich backfires. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.